Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 23, the 49th Parallel. I will be using the Criterion Collection DVD issued in 2010, but you can also find the 49th Parallel on Vudu and Amazon Prime. If you hit play on the DVD now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. If you are playing a streaming version, you will be ahead for two or three seconds. It's our second Criterion in a row. Well, are we hoity-toity? especially with Janus Films. Michael Powell was a Brit who started as a gopher in European cinema in 1925. In the late 30s, famous European expat director Alexander Korda, who had fled Hungary for Britain's open-ended cinema, hired Michael Powell to direct The Spy in Black, 1939. Korda also hired Emir Josef Riesberger, another Hungarian Jew, who also left Hungary only for Ufa in Berlin, where he was a script doctor. From there, he fled to Paris in 1935 when the Nuremberg Laws took effect, and Korda brought him to London to work on The Spy in Black. Pressburger and Powell started a collaboration that lasted until 1970 and counted 24 films under their production company, which they called The Archers. Although the 49th Parallel is a Powell and Pressburger film, it predates the Archer period. We open with a passing airplane shot of a glacier in Alberta's Rocky Mountains, most likely in Banff National Park, where the climax of the 49th Parallel takes place. The opening declarative script immediately identifies the film as UK propaganda, and it would not have been a surprise for film audiences in Canada or the United States to learn that this film was financed by the British government for the sole purpose of eliciting sympathy in the voting electorate in North America. Especially in the United States. Especially in the United States. And although the 49th Parallel was shot in Canada with a mixed Canadian crew in front of behind the cameras and the Canadian viewpoint is very important, the true purpose of the 49th Parallel was to sway American public opinion into joining the British war effort. Because yeah, they had that strange thought that Nazis were bad. They were bad people. It's unusual. The film is a direct result of the Second World War. The outbreak of the war in September 1939 led to a reorganization in the British government to fight the war, including an organized effort to define the war in a reinstatement of the Ministry of Information, or MOI, created the day after Britain declared war on Germany. The first leader of the MOI, as it was called, was Lord Macmillan, a member of the House of Lords who did such a horrible job that the general public gave the MOI a new moniker, that of the Ministry of Disinformation. <laughs> Macmillan was replaced in January of 1940 by Sir John Reith, who we can assume did not that much better of a job as Winston Churchill replaced him with a guy named, get this, Duff Cooper in May Sweet. of 1940. Big fan of the beer. Sounds like a British spy. Shortly after, Churchill was appointed prime minister by the King of England, George VI. Now, notice that we focus on all of North America before we center on the 49th parallel. We get the gist that the film is not just pointed to Canada, but about Canada's only neighbor, the United States. The narrative's assertion that this is the world's longest unguarded and peaceful border is true, but it is not without intrigue. Famous Canadian historian Pierre Burton wrote about the Canadian spies mapping invasion routes south of the 49th parallel as late as 1935. 
Hmm. This is the front range behind Kananaskis National Park, just past Canmore, Alberta, on your way into Banff National Park. This is along Route 1, the Trans-Canada Highway, that, which theoretically runs from St. John's Harbor in Newfoundland to Stanley Park in Vancouver, the longest highway in the world. It runs to the south of the Bow River, which flows out of Banff National Park to Calgary, Alberta. On the north side of the Bow River is the Bow Valley Trail, which parallels the river. In fact, you'll pick up on a lot of parallels in the film, as Powell and Pressburger seem to have selected the word, not just as a title, but as a theme. The city of Calgary and the aerial view of its aerial stark yards, making it the Fort Worth of the north, is briefly replaced by the lakes of Manitoba before we focus on the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Powell and Pressburger have keenly shown us where we are going by backtracking to where we start our history. The real U-37 was commissioned in 1938 and sunk 53 ships, including two British warships. It fled to Flensburg shortly before capitulation was scuttled under the surrender of May 8, 1945. The filmmakers had no way to verify the names of the submarines, so they just used a random one. There was a second U-37, which served during the First World War, or I guess you would call it the first U-37, which was also scuttled under the armistice in 1918. This is not a real German Unterseeboot, but rather a mock set built by the Canadian design crew in Halifax, Nova Scotia for the film. At the opening of the war, the MOI established the film's division to promote Allied propaganda through documentary and feature films. The department head of the film's division of the MOI also experienced high turnover. But by January of 1940, the film's division established an ideas committee to pitch documentary projects and feature films and shortlisted plans to proceed a film aimed at the morale of the Canadian electorate. The 49th Parallel, for instance. It took about 21 months from the Ideas Committee to pitch the film's premiere on October 8, 1941, and it premiered in the United States on 15th of April, 1942, six months after Pearl Harbor. It was the highest-earning film in Britain in 1942, and it not only paid back what it spent out of the U.K. government, but it gave the government huge profits as well. And now, without delaying for another second, let's welcome... Dave Anderson, back into the Hacienda. Dave, when was the first time you saw the 49th Parallel, and what did you think? I think, actually, the first time I saw the 49th Parallel was earlier this week when I watched a copy of this provided by my good friend, <laughs> Dylan Davis. Um, I obviously had known about the film, like almost all of the um, Powell Pressburger films that I have seen, um, but it was the first time I'd had an opportunity to see this. It was on my to-get list for quite a while. I just never did. You know, Barnes & Noble 50% sales are usually where I stock up, and I never had an opportunity on this one. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought it was a tremendous uh, thriller. It's an obvious propaganda piece, but it doesn't feel... I mean, obviously I'm going to be biased, but it didn't feel as bang-you-over-the-head propaganda, although I may be kidding myself on that. Like a lot of German propaganda that we see. Right, seen. which, I mean, obviously we're going to have a different perspective because, you know, we're the good guys. Right. But We won. We won. Which doesn't dismiss the fact that we're still the good guys, relatively <laughs> speaking. Um, but, yeah, I enjoyed it immensely and thought the performances were tremendous, and we will get to those. And, mm -hmm. obviously, that's my word of the podcast. Right. Um, I saw this a couple of years ago. Actually, I, I bought this uh, when I still lived in the States. And when I moved to Alberta, uh, I watched it when I was up there. And I was I was shocked to actually see Banff National Park and places that uh, that I drove past in order to get to Banff. And there are other shots that are in Banff later in the film, like, oh, my God, that's Banff Springs Bridge. That's the Banff Town Square. And I was I had no clue. And the. Uh, one of the really surprising things uh, is when you went to Banff and you went into the stores as a tourist, you didn't see the 49th parallel anywhere. It's like nobody knew anything about the film. You would ask locals who lived there, 
and uh, people who live in Banff, um, they're sort of grandfathered in because it's mm-hmm. a national park. So the only way you can live there is if uh, you were born there, basically. You, the only way you can sell a house there is to another person who's who's from Banff. And no one, no one knew about the film, none of the waiters or none of the owners or anything. I, I found that astounding. And I thought the film was, was really good. But, again, like we're biased, right? Well, we are biased. But it's also one of those where this is definitely a piece designed for the specific time that it came out. Right. Right. And it didn't. It doesn't have that place in the public consciousness like some of the other films of the similar era, where it maintained its universally, you know, accepted classic. Sure. I mean, but I, I do think it's it's actually I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think it's tremendous propaganda, and Michael Powell is is probably the beginning, middle, and end of why. Uh, and so we're cued with several things of uh, you know sinking the ship, of pushing the British sailor out in the water, and then the, the the sinister picture of Hitler touching a child. Yes. Which probably made eat everybody <laughs> in Britain in 1940 just go, <laughs> Yes, but was, you know, probably, I don't know how much it would have affected, say, American audiences at the time. The Canadians were involved in the war when this was made, correct? Right. At least by the right. setting of the movie. And But I, even then, I don't know how personally attached they would have been to the image of Hitler. Certainly not as, you know, dynamic as the Brits. Right, and you, you raise an interesting point while we look at uh, Eric Portman here. Um, this is a great propaganda film, but as they go, it's a strange one, and it's strange because of the timing, like you were saying. And unfortunately, it helps if I explain the timing of this film to understand why it stands out among under other propaganda films. The war breaks out in September of 1939. As, as of that date, there's really no reason by many on all sides to think that this war will be any different than the last one. In fact, most people on the planet, not just in Britain, think that this will play out in the same manner as the First World War. The shock comes when the war starts and Germany invades Poland by the end of, end of August 1939. The Polish campaign is over. So half of Poland belongs to the Soviet Union because they made a deal with the Nazis a month before the war. And the two dictatorships split that country between them. So Germany isn't taking all of Poland, just lands that mostly previously belonged to Germany before the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. And when that war is over, and it happened really fast, the, the campaign between the Air Force, what the Germans called the Luftwaffe, and the Army, called the Heer, and the tanks, called the Panzers, it happened so fast that France and Britain, which declared war on Germany, was, they were really flabbergasted at the speed. I mean, they were shocked at how fast uh, the Germany conquered Poland. They thought it was going to be a repeat of 1914, trenches and everything, essentially a stalemate. Mm-hmm. So that infected their thinking. And Britain is going to spend most of the next three months ferrying the Army to France. So... Now you're talking December 1939, now January of 1940, still no fighting war between Britons and Germans. In, in fact, uh, the British and Germans. The Battle of France, which is uh, the German invasion of France, does not take place until June of 1940. So you have this 10-month period in the beginning of the war where nothing happens. There's no armies going anywhere except the Italians driving around the desert in Africa. And there's is no doubt in Britain that the Nazis are this nefarious gangster dictatorship. They know that for sure. But the Holocaust is still two years away, and the ethnic cleansing of Poland is not front-page news and wouldn't be for a long time. So there's this 10-month period where the Germans are definitely our enemy, and we need America and Canada's help to fight them. But we're not in that evil stage just yet. And that's the period where this film was conceived and filmed. Gotcha. And again, like it came out in October of, of 1940 in Britain, but it, it wasn't uh, – I remember Pearl Harbor's like two months away, mm-hmm. and then it didn't. It wasn't released in the states until April of 1941. 
So uh, the timing of it just it it hit at just the right time in Britain and just the right time in America. By the time this came out in America, Americans were primed for watching something like this. And uh, this reminds me a lot of uh, other films. Um, I mean, Run Silent, Run Deep, of course. But I'm I'm really thinking like The Hunt for Red October. October. Yeah, I was thinking the same it thing. Really, and it makes me think that McTiernan at least saw this. Oh, I would imagine so. It'd be this is one of those sequences that is very consistent with all other portrayals yeah, I mean, of later. So, if not this movie specifically, then one of its. Yeah, or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, mm -hmm. thinking that Steven Spielberg didn't see a Michael Powell film with a submarine before he did the ending of Raiders, is, that's seems, kind of absurd. It seems impossible. Yeah. When Pressburger went to uh, Canada with a scouting crew that took three weeks. He went to Canada during the blockade. So he went on a ship, he ran through the blockade with a Canadian crew, shot all this, and then ran through the blockade back to Britain. Certainly a level of uh, elevated risk level. Yeah. And when he came back, uh, London was in the Blitz. So imagine that. I mean, that's crazy. So he returned to Canada with a few more Brits, the technical crew, and they shot for nine weeks in mainly Nova Scotia and Alberta. The entire movie was pitched, written, and shot around two ruling concepts that the Ministry of Information wanted every propaganda piece to focus on, which is why we fight and what are we fighting for. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty – I mean, it beats you over the head on both topics for this particular movie. But – uh, it doesn't bother me, but it's definitely clearly spelled out. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're constantly espousing ideology, mm -hmm. um, which, I mean, to to know someone who is a national socialist, how can you, how can you not? Now, the the Kriegsmarine, the the German Navy, is kind of an oddball when it comes to um, the ideological fight. They weren't exceptionally ideological. A lot of them were. Uh, all of them were volunteers. You had, mm -hmm. to, you had to volunteer to get into a U-boat. And so you do have that kind of ideology in the crew, but in, among the officer corps, you really didn't. The, the Kriegsmarine was not uh, ideolo ideological like, say, the Luftwaffe. Right. Like the Luftwaffe was born by Hermann Goering, and it was created ideologically. It was almost a part of, of the Nazi uh, party machine, right? And, uh, and Hitler was completely sold on that fact. So... Uh, in reality, the, the sailors would probably be more ideological than the officers. So that part would be be true. But as far as having this this guy who is an over-the-top officer, that that wouldn't necessarily be the case. No, but it, it's, you have to put it in there because he's, he's the one in charge of the crew. And right. I think that the crew is portrayed – it's pretty interesting, frankly, for a propaganda film. Oh, the explosion here was tremendous. Oh, yeah. You know, because, I love it. And they rigged up the, you know, the actual model. Yeah. With to real to actually blow up, yeah. yeah. So one of those that probably wouldn't happen today, even just because, well, not necessarily I, even because a, of CGI. But just, right, right. Well, I was thinking U-571, 1999, with Matthew McConaughey. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen Oh, man, that, that shot of the U-boat mm -hmm. blowing up was just right out of now, it. you got to see that, yeah. man. It's got John Bon Jovi in it. I'm, I know that, and that's one of the, well, you know. After, I mean, look at that. He that's... did Young Guns too, and that was enough. <laughs> John no. Bon Jovi was in Young Guns too. Mm -hmm. uh, two or one, one of the two. I, I believe was, it's two. He did the soundtrack for two. He so did, but I believe be... he gets shot in two in a split-second cameo. Okay. See, I, I watch the important things. <laughs> right. But even here where they're having to maintain discipline, it's they're not portrayed as a bunch of buffoons. Right. Right. They're pre presented as professional and intelligent and, you know, certainly 
dangerous, but it is one of those where, for a propaganda piece, they're given a certain degree of respect, which is, you know, partially unanticipated. I would say so. Uh, now, when you see the uh, the Inuits, First Nations, as mm-hmm. we say in Canada, we don't use the I word in Canada. It's insulting. Um, what came to mind seeing the indigenous people, like as far as films concerned, anything pop up? Well, I mean, you have Nanook of the North. It, which that's is, exactly what I was Right, saying. which is kind of the touchstone of that type of portrayal in this area. Not area, but north. Yeah. North of the 49th parallel. Yeah, now I don't remember where uh, Nanook of the North was was shot, but it's an exceptional quote-unquote documentary that we, we found out decades later that it, a lot of it was staged. Yeah, it's a Michael Moore film. Yeah, it's really, yeah. There might be some truth to it. Even there, there is certainly always some degree, but it doesn't matter, right? It's, it's, it's in and of itself an entertaining picture, which is the primary objective of pretty much any film, in my opinion. It has to be at least some degree entertaining. Right. Uh, oh, the the thing that I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, did you ever see Sink the Bismarck? Another British propaganda piece. That I, you know, I, I saw that when I was really, really, really young, younger than 10, because as a kid, one of my favorite models was the Bismarck. Yeah. I, I had received a model of it, built it. You know, I didn't associate it with much of anything beyond being a really awesome model. Yeah. But the name is very attractive and a huge fan of North Dakota, of course. But... <laughs> So, well, but and, I, I think I'd seen it like on re, you know, television. It was color. I'm not yeah. that old, but it was, or at least the television was color. Yeah, no, it was black and white. Yeah, the, so well, you the must have seen was. a uh, Ted Turner version. No, 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 no. What I'm getting at the, tel- the, the television was, was color, color, but you were watching a black and white. Projection. Yeah, okay. So it, I was really quite young when I'd seen it. Yeah, that and, that briefly, and that was a, an, again another propaganda film that was made during the war. Olivier. Olivier, yeah. I Which mean, I was amazed to find out that that beard was not real. That was exceptionally well done. That was a prosthetic that they put on him. He, at the time, was probably, I mean, next to Leslie Howard mm-hmm. and uh, Nigel Hawthorne, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most popular living British actors ever. Yes, and he Charles turns it up, Lawton. Yeah, and he turns it up to eleven in this. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. And I can see where I, I, you know, I've read some criticism where he portrays it as so over the top, it's absurd. But I think it actually kind of works here in the beginning because the way, you know, spoiler, he perishes. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of a nice transition from establishing the seriousness of the stakes of the film. Yeah, and I think that works really well by countering it with his. Admittedly, over the top and somewhat goofy, and frankly naive, the character. Oh, yeah, and uh, completely stereotyped. Mm-hmm. Like if you know, if, if if you were to put any Canadian in a room and say, "What's your what's your stereotype of a Quebecois?" Mm-hmm. It, they would probably describe something like this. Yeah, Lawrence Olivier's performance in this film. But he's an over the top actor, and he always has been. Like I, I saw his Othello. That he did, I think, in 1966, which mm-hmm. today I don't think he'd ever show because it's just like this completely over-the-top racist performance. But his performances are all over the top, except for I'd say the one performance that, where I think it's just absolutely pulled back. It's probably his best performance is in Marathon I was about Man. to say Marathon Man be That's my presumption. completely restrained, and mm-hmm. it's just so sinister. Of course, he's such older, but he was known for uh, – he was the Kenneth Bronner of his era. 
right he's, now. He's big. Yeah, and he was he was drafted. I didn't know that. And he was in the army. So if you wanted Olivier in your in your film, you had to convince the Ministry of Information that you needed him. So they, that's how important the 49th parallel was to the British government. Was they let Olivier out to do it, and they wanted him. Uh, Powell and Pressburger wanted him in the Archers to do, for the, to play Colonel Blimp. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I remember reading that. But yeah. they were, Churchill was not a fan of that right. script. Right. Which we can table that till later. Well, yeah, he saw. Yeah, well, that might be if we don't get to it later in this film, right. we'll probably get to it in the, in the special the right. report because I think but Churchill I, saw some of himself in that. I mean, I think to a large degree, and I could be mistaken that you know Olivier's character here and the way he's reacting to the news and the way he's not tr- taking any of the situation all that seriously was designed, at least when it was made, to speak directly to the United States citizens. Right. They, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, he has certainly an isolationist by, you know his geography and being out of touch literally for the year that he was gone. Whereas, you know, obviously at the time the United States was very torn between isolationist mm-hmm. ideology and getting involved. Yeah. So, There's an element of, of Jeremiah Johnson mm-hmm. going on. He comes in and, and, and what do I care? I'm, I'm French. I'm Can- I'm French Canadian. I'm, I'm Catholic. I'm, I'm in the Hudson Bay. Like, these things don't matter to me, like what's going on in, in Poland. Right. right. And uh, and I, I think you're right. This is this is engineered to be on the face of it about the Canadian situation. But underneath that, in, in every scene, is mm-hmm. we're trying to convince the Americans. That there's a legitimate threat and we need their help. And right. look how justifiable your action would be. I'm willing to bet, by the way, that this shirt that he's wearing is, was red. And it's, it's, I'm, it I'm not willing to, to take that, yeah. It's with dark brown pants you know yes it would be very on brand and and this is uh i always found this when i remember when i watched this for the first time i actually thought man this is really too on the nose like you've got the french canadian the anglo canadian and mm-hmm. the inuit canadian in the same in the same the same scene house, the same group same scene same group and there, there's that scene when when portman comes in with with the crew and he says, um, I'm Canadian, he Canadian, he Canadian. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay. Like I, you know, you didn't have to have that line. Oh. But at the same time, like how could you do without that line? Right. And I think it, I, th- I think it was a well-placed line, right? It's showing solidarity. And again, it's one of those that when I watched this, I was viewing it through what I would imagine, you know, it's political purpose to be right. And mm-hmm. solidarity is a big component of the whole thing. So I, I thought it made sense. And it's rather, you know, not shocking, but surprising how definitive it is, especially including the Inuit servant. Inuit, sure. Sorry, sorry. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of and those that, you know, we like to look back on times like this with a certain degree of cynicism. And I don't know if that, you know, his statement was really outside the norm of the popular entertainment of the time, or hmm. if you just kind of view it as like, well, I wouldn't expect it to be that. Well, I mean, obviously there's a, there's an, all I'm basing it on is the seven years that I lived in Canada. I mean, oh, yeah. obviously there's like a, a subtext of, of racism going on in Canadian society where well, uh, that at the time they would, they would see that completely as normal. I'm sure that Inuits in first nations probably don't like this film because of, of what that role. Oh, I don't know. Is. Well, I don't know if they wouldn't like, okay. Independent uh, there, of that. Right. But there, there would be probably some, some jokes in modern day or even at the time of, well, obviously, it's the French guy going out and earning the living, and it's the English guy smoking mm-hmm. his pipe in his cabin for the year. Right. Right. Like crossing his legs and talking about, oh, that war and so forth. Like, so, you know, the people who 
who lounge, the people who work, and then the people who really work as servants. And this is a great introduction. Oh, this for me. It's straight out of a Halloween movie, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like almost like a horror. Mm-hmm. Just other passing by the window or proto Hitchcock. Or I guess you could say very much like Hitchcock. Very much like Hitchcock. Well, I said it was right out of Halloween, and that's obviously incorrect. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, it's Halloween. I mean, that's sort of Michael Myers. Halloween is exactly, you could see where Carpenter would take that type of imagery from past films and implement it. No, absolutely. Even though I don't think there's a shot like that in that particular movie. No, but but it's very much in that mode. It's very much in that mode. Yeah, this being October, we should bring that up. Even though this is going to air for another month. So, I was initially, when the first time I watched I was like, why the fuck are they calling Winnipeg? Like, if they're, if they're in the Hudson Bay. Mm-hmm. But, of course, if you know, I actually, stupid me, I actually had to get a map out and look at it. The Hudson Bay, duh, everybody knows this. Well, you should hope. But it's, it's, it's huge. It's like a yeah, third it's a giant of Canada. It's giant. So, I was thinking they're on, the, like, the, the north west end or east end of the Hudson Bay. But, no, I mean, if you're in the north east or the southeast end of the hudson bay Minnesota. you're going to be in manitoba right. so of course you'd be closer to uh winnipeg than you would be to toronto or quebec or quebec city or anything else so that, that it made complete sense this block here and and of course the the native is going to be the first to die yeah and i, I don't know about you but I, that's one of those that i was rather shocked by the violence it's yeah. a pretty good point it's pretty rough it's pretty brutal and it's for a movie at the time, yeah. I mean, yeah. you have a cutaway, but it's it's no doubt what he, what they're doing. Correct. And then the aftermath that they show with the blood is, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, it's, on the, it's, yeah, it's really, more graphic than film. you would anticipate. Absolutely. And you notice Olivia says he's got eight brothers and six sisters. <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you expect out of a French Catholic family at the time? But, I mean, this is some really good shooting right here where they show Vogel, the character, who uh, is about the only one of the crew that seems to have a real sense of, you know, conscience where he's still awake. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of impressive foreshadowing if you watch it the second time. And this guy, the the engineer. And that's whose name I was trying to look pilot, up. I mean, yeah. I think he's as this is tremendous what he does. I, it, I, I think the way he's portrayed as. A super genius know-it-all, at least in his own perception, and everything he does just backfires and is pretty stupid. It does, and and I was wondering, particularly with the slick back hair and a leather jacket, like mm-hmm. I was wondering if this was like a, just a direct ripoff of uh, Herman Goering. Maybe yeah, he was known for being portly, portly and in and power, the, and I know everything. And then and, the answer is probably yes. You know, they the archers are pretty clever in observation. And it wouldn't it wouldn't be a big stretch at the time. And Goering was the was the deputy Führer. Mm-hmm. He was the second in line. If anything VP. happened to Hitler, he was next in line. And, it, and in fact, at the end of the war, he tried to exercise that. And, it, and that backfired on him badly. Right? He was later arrested. Mm. Um, so it, it, people in Britain would definitely know who Goering was and who uh, Himmler was mm-hmm. as the leader of the SS. So that that's not outside the realm of possibility. And I love um, Olivier's his little wink, his his <laughs> wink and his his righteous. I should I don't want to say it's 
on the nose righteousness. I think it's it's much more smoother than mm-hmm. that. But it 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 reminded me of. Uh, and, but occasionally at the end of it, and as things heat up, he gets like indignant. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me a lot of a, a documentary in the 1970s that he narrated uh, called The Second uh, Second World War. I think it, The World at War. World it War, was originally financed by the BBC. I think it was like 16 parts. It was brilliant. I've watched it all several times. He narrates the whole thing. And there are moments, particularly in the beginning, in the first episode when they talk about the, the rise of Hitler, and then the last episode where they talk about the aftermath and devastation. Where you can just tell, like, Olivier's, like, pissed off. Like, he's delivering these lines, and he's, like, upset. He's got an emotional attachment. Right. I found this interesting. If I'm not mistaken, going on memory, this is one of the sequences that was deleted from the original American release. Oh, really? Yeah, um, because, you know, they were talking about the, you know, the priest, who is in actuality, you know, the map maker for the Germans here. So I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, I've watched the commentary track by Bruce Eater. Mm. where he mentions that this is one of the segments that was deleted, assuming my memory isn't totally addled. Why do you think they deleted it? Because you wanted to keep I, – I don't think it was definitively stated as to the why beyond the fact that, you know, it was, you know, as a man of the church who was acting oh, as, an manner, agent as, of, as an agent of evil. Yeah. But I think it's also one of those where, you know, we didn't – I don't want to call censors at the time, although I'm sure that – you know, I don't, I don't think of the MPAA, right, and, and the board is all that is, you know, officially censors. But it is one of those where they wanted to maximize the popularity. If it didn't pass mustard, it wouldn't be released. That's interesting. I would think that Canadians would be, or particularly French Canadians, would be more upset at that than, say, Americans. Um, I, I could understand deleting it because you just didn't want to mention too much uh, Catholicism to mm-hmm. the American audience because the American audience at the time was still just very much anti-Catholic and, until the late 1960s, I'd say. I mean, it takes Alfred E. Smith ran for president, I think, uh, against Roosevelt in 1940. and But it really takes John Kennedy in 1960 to really just make Catholicism normal among public officials and the public consciousness. Right. And like I said, I may, may be mistaken it was Canadian, but I was pretty sure that was my recollection. Yeah. Well, I, I think I that's kind of – it's it's kind of shitty compared to how the – not to just dive off the deep end in this particular subject, but the church was in a really tight period during the war. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's really, uh, I think it's kind of a, uh, a black stain to, to, to put that in the film of, Oh, this guy's like a, a Nazi agent. And the church for the most part, particularly in, uh, in Europe, you know, they didn't have a choice. They had a gun to their head. Well, I don't think that it, for the purpose of the movie it was presented as a criticism of the Catholic church. I think it's a, it's a very logical, you know, we have missionaries, they're going around, right. You know, right. that's a perfect agent. Right. And it's also called back to on when Olivier is passing away where he well, they'll send the missionaries to Germany. Right. You know, which is a good <laughs> callback. Right. That's good. Well, it, and in reality, the, the, the people that you had to look out for were, were the Bund. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bund was the, particularly in America was a really strong pro German group of, of dues paying uh, German immigrants and their children. And, particularly uh, in the New York area and the Washington area and the Pittsburgh area, they were very, very strong and they existed in, in Canada too. Uh, they, uh, th- there have been just very few films uh, made about the boon in Canada. Uh, just the one that pops into mind and please forgive me for bringing this up during this podcast, but yoga hosers kind of touches on, um, on some of that Nazi sympathy in Canada during and after the war. Okay. Right. I'm not going to forgive you. Thanks. No, I've actually not seen it, so I don't have an opinion. 
Well, that would be better than most people's opinions of that movie. <laughs> that is my understanding. Yeah. So, um, and this is a pretty good battle of wits where, again, they portray Portman's character as, you know, a, a pretty formidable opponent. He's, I think so. Yeah. I mean, he's I think so. definitely intelligent. He is no fool and very serious. So I, 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 like I said, that was one of the things that impressed me about this because it's very easy to imagine when you say propaganda mm-hmm. that, you know, your enemy is portrayed as a evil, mm-hmm. which is, okay, consistent with this. But also, although sometimes it's pretty sympathetic portrayals from the Germans themselves, and then also kind of fools. Whereas this, you know, in this movie, Portman in specific, he is certainly portrayed as a legitimate threat. Right. That by the end of the movie, you wouldn't be surprised if he'd have gotten away with it. A, a very dangerous fool. Oh, I don't know if he's ever. I, mean, I don't think he's a fool. No. I, yeah, I, don't think I, he's I think he's very cunning and it's very smart. Oh, yeah. yeah, but uh, this would, and you see Olivier just like trying to reason with him or trying mm-hmm. to use logic with him. It just doesn't. With someone who's ideologically blinded, logic right. and reason is not going to go anywhere. Well, yeah, but he does. You know, he also replies with a consistent logic on his end, right? He doesn't lose his cool, right? You know, and it's not one of those where it's portrayed as. Inherently ridiculous. I mean, yes, saying the Mein Kampf is your Bible is kind of patently absurd. But at the time, I can't definitively say if that would have been the normal Well, that would have been extremely close. Um, I mean, I, I think there were – there was I, – I read something somewhere where, like every other country, everywhere in, in the Christian world, there was like 1.7 Bibles for every right. person in, in that country. And that was no different in Germany. But – but in Germany, for Mein Kampf, it was it was like two point five or something. It was stupid, and it you got one when you when you signed your register to get married. So you, got you a as a couple got copy? one. Oh, if you were nice. in the Hitler Youth, you were issued one. So I mean, if if you're married and in the Hitler Youth, just automatically you had two. Mm-hmm. You know, if you went to any college, I think it was like after nineteen thirty five, you were given one as well. Right. Yeah, so Probably one per one per year, right? So I, I wouldn't – now, whether or not people read it like the Bible, that's completely different. Right. There certainly were some, and probably you would hope a vast majority who didn't. I, I have a distinct feeling, and I can't back this up at all, that the most people who read Mein Kampf were people who lived outside of Germany. But that's just well, yeah, my bias and my opinion. Right. And this is, again, a tremendous – where the engineer, he really has a lot of misplaced confidence in himself. Yeah. Yeah, and and going back to Olivier's care, I'm just fascinated with Olivier and what he stands for and what he means mm-hmm. and, and what his performance portrays. Like, it's it's almost like really damning of Vichy at the time. So there's a lot of politics going into it. Like, there, there are a lot of French in Canada who wanted nothing to do with this war. First of all, like, I'm not going to go fight for some king in some other country that mm-hmm. I don't swear allegiance to, even though they made this deal to enter Confederacy only 50 years before. But also, like, Vichy, Vichy cut a deal. Vichy surrendered. Vichy made a deal with the Nazis. They got half their country um, for effectively the next two and a half years of the war. They could just rule as a as a dictatorship to their, to their own will. And as far as Vichy was concerned, the war was over. 
They're right. out. So uh, a lot of the French sympathy was, well, war's over. Why are the English still fighting? Just mm-hmm. cut a deal with Hitler and just end the war. And call it good. Yeah. That, was, that was their immediate logic. And I, I wouldn't say that, that that reasoning was lost either on the British public or on the Canadian public. Or I mean, Churchill just most recently in the, in the film, um, uh, the one that Gary Oldman played brilliantly played Churchill in. Darkest Hour? Uh, the Darkest Hour. Brilliant film. Um, they actually discussed the, the true reality of spending an entire day talking about, well, what will this mean if we actually do cut a deal with him? Mm-hmm. What, what does this mean short-term for Britain and long-term, long-term for the world and our empire? And they they decided at the end of it not to do it. And it it raises, it raises very, very distinct problems. You know, the United States still had an embassy in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, or rather, rather in Vichy to deal with the Vichy French. And the British were constantly effing up that relationship with that we had with the French uh, until Pearl Harbor. And then everything was just right. crystal clear. And so for, for a French Canadian to go see this movie and see Olivier's, like they might be offended that Olivier's playing the role, uh, but to them it would, they would either starkly disagree with it or find a lot in common with his point of view. And I, I haven't seen his other films of the era, um, Henry V and mm-hmm. Hamlet, and uh, he did a lot of Shakespeare during this time. And, but I mean, I think I have seen the Henry V. That was on Criterion, I think, yeah, in the I think 90s. I, yeah, I had the Laserdisc, I believe. But that's irrelevant. I mean, I had I had seen that, but again, it's been so long that it's not that ingrained in my memory at this moment. When he picks up that accordion and starts playing it, I'm like, okay, plaid shirt, accordion, all he needs now is a mime. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting. Portman goes on a while about racial disparity mm-hmm. and racial um, inequality. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting to think. I mean, we live in. I mean, this is eighty years after the war. Things are just different now. But you know, my grandfather fought in the war. He was in the Second Infantry Division, and he fought in in Normandy, D Day plus twenty two, all the way to Battle of the Bulge, and he was evacuated after he was wounded. But my grandfather was from West Texas, and he was a prejudiced man. Mm-hmm. And that's no different than anyone else who was prejudiced during the nineteen thirties or forties or fifties. That was just the world that they lived in. It's no excuse. Yeah, it's it's just, just, it just is what it is. is. Right. But even to my grandfather, the Germans were out of whack. Oh, yeah. Like, even to my grandfather, they were white supremacists and they were Aryans. And it was very strange to listen to someone who was prejudiced saying well, the Germans were just, they were just way, way, way. Right. I mean, I, I would imagine, not having met your grandfather, would be like, you know, I don't like these people, but, you know, whatever, as long as they, you know, keep on their end of the world and I keep on mine, we're all good. Right. right? Where it's a lot different than. We're going to systematically destroy these people. Yeah. You know, yeah. there is a definite difference between disliking people and hating them so much. That Segregation and yeah. genocide. Yeah. Right. There are these differences, you know, and it's, I mean, people who are prejudiced are sometimes completely illogical and crazy, but oftentimes they're not. And they just don't consider being wrong per se, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the, but I've got a black friend. Right. It's like, right. right. It doesn't, that doesn't mean you're, what does that mean? Yeah. It's like, okay, you got a friend. Congratulations. But it's, it's just one of those where, yeah, almost no matter where you sit on the spectrum, as long as you're not on that far end where it's like, yeah, Jews, yeah, get rid of them. Yeah. And the Catholics, let's get rid of them too. And you know, it's, 
Well, that, yeah, well, I think it was past. I don't know. I don't, it wasn't Niemöller. I don't remember who it was, but it's that famous phrase, you know, they came for the communists and I wasn't a communist, so I didn't right. care. And then they and came they, for the socialists and I didn't yeah. care. And then they came for the Catholics and I didn't care. And then they came for the Jews and I didn't care. And then they came for me. And then I cared a little and bit. And there was no one who cared. Right. And this is a fairly vicious attack that really establishes the enemy as oh, kind of, I mean, very much immoral. Absolutely. Just mowing these people down in cold blood. In the back. Yeah. It really establishes them as people to hate. And it's actually, at the time, this is very strange to say, this is actually very forward of, of British cinema, cinema to acknowledge there was an initial ethnic cleansing in Poland, which happened in September, October, and November of 1939 uh, during the occupation, the battle and the occupation of that country. But after that, largely, it stopped, and it stopped because uh, now there were there was a German uh, civilian authority in place that took took over after the Wehrmacht. They divided mm-hmm. the areas of occupied Poland, and then they instituted. Um, you know, the, the labeling of Jews, the segregation of Jews, and the, the ghettoization of Jews, and they created a separation that they thought was going to be uh, permanent. So uh, this is based on so far, since they shot this in the spring and the summer of 1940, uh, so far it's based on those, those early um, activities that they knew that were happening in Poland at the time. Mm-hmm. The, the invasion of the Soviet Union isn't for another year. Right. And uh, the war, like was said, is, it actually doesn't start until uh, May of 1940. And even during the invasion of France, although the, you had sporadic war crimes all throughout the war, there was only really one instance where there was one village in France that was just wiped off the face of the planet uh, during that invasion. Other than that, the, the Germans were known as like these gangster politicians, but the, the army itself was not known as this – uh, yeah. tool of racist genocide. Right. It was just very effective and scary soldiers. Right, right. So I, I would say that, that that scene of swiping out the Inuits really well, evokes a lot like this, take yeah. the damn queen down to the king of the queen. But it's, you know, but it's also one of those things where, you know, they, they're obviously, they're trying to stop the pilots. Right. 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 And just everybody else gets mowed down as well. So I don't think it was necessarily presented as a focused attempt to eliminate the Inuits exclusively. Well, it, it could have been something that just got out of hand. Right. It just it's, started as one thing and but just it is went one to of those, another. Yeah, but it's one of those where, okay, here's innocence, and it does a good job of really having the audience dislike. Not that you would think you would need a lot of motivation, but it is one of those where it certainly does it as well. Yeah. And I found it fascinating because uh, – you know, you watch it once and it's sort of, well, you know, they're clearly establishing lines. Mm-hmm. But then you watch it again and you, you start seeing like this morality mm-hmm. involved in it that it's it's like it's layered. Yeah, like it's parallel it's, morality. It's, right. It's deeper. It's yeah, it's it's actually yeah, it is a fairly deep movie in that regard. Which, again, is surprising for such a. For when you hear propaganda film, you imagine a very basic. Well, I would say that if, if people say propaganda film, just immediately what movie comes to your mind? Actually, for, for me, yeah, it's uh, the Bugs Bunny cartoon. Where he, 
Those are the ones where I think propaganda. Where <laughs> the you, war cartoons? Yeah, the war cartoons. That's, that's usually what I do. Okay, what's the second film that comes to mind? <laughs> I'm totally, I'm totally blanking. What, what? Uh, Triumph for the Will. Oh, well, yes. I mean, I mean yeah. that Riefenstahl is right. immediately what comes to mind. No, it's a legit point, and I'm just dumb. The the scene that we we passed this is brilliant like these these shots it's, it's almost like a, a documentary style of, of the Inuit taking the rifle and hiding mm-hmm. behind the rock and and I thought it was you know definitely put there on purpose where he is the one who meets out meets out his justice right you know right just a crack it's almost shot like a western there yeah, it's very much very much which is probably consistent with a lot of the action in movies of that time westerns were so predominant right and so popular everywhere in the world so the scene before where they were they were talking about i've been a party member since 1930 something and Mm -hmm. i thought that was very interesting since that's actually how a lot of people rank themselves in the party this is how long i've been associated with these a-holes right right i've i was a party member since 1930 you know people do that with everything yeah. Right. I've been a member of this country club since before you were born. I was. What's what's the the Texas thing? The old three hundred. No, exactly. I'm a descendant of the old, old three hundred. Oh, like, oh, okay. All right then. Right. My my wife actually is a, a for a very long time was a um, a member of the DAR, the Daughters, Daughters of the Revolution. Revolution. And it's it's sort of now what's the point type of thing. And they they did something recently to piss my wife off. She's like, I'm not. I'm quitting that organization. <laughs> But it it is <clears throat> Hitler went to jail in 1925. He spent a year in jail, and he came out of jail, and he basically just played it cool. And his book came out, and then he he became extraordinarily popular when he went on the the, the book tour. And they had an election in 1928, and the Nazis just gained uh, exceedingly well. And considering they were banned in 1925, right after the Beer Hall Pooch, mm-hmm. to go from that to, to to winning like almost 30 percent in the in the Reichstag in 1928. It was only a three-year period. It really took everybody by surprise. So they, they actually had this concept of, well, if you were a Nazi before 1928, then then you're actually ideologically pure. If you're after that, it, it's not like you were seen as a pure or uh, as an opportunist, yeah, but, it's, but it's sort of like, well, you didn't join until after people already died. Right. That type of weird, bizarre situation. And, and there are people that joined after 1930 that you think – like Reinhard Heydrich was one of those guys. The guys who organized the Holocaust didn't join until after 1930. Maybe they just weren't of age to be eligible to join. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they had an age. No, I don't think so. Either. I think birth was perfectly acceptable to be a Nazi. Uh, the chess game, we missed the chess game too. Yes, we did. Uh, your thoughts on the chess? Like It was fairly obvious to me. Like this is. Well, what are your thoughts? Well, it almost reminds me of that that scene in Lady from Shanghai where the, they had the courtroom, um, the courtroom drama was going on, and the judge says we're going to take a break, and then you've got uh, the members of the court walking across the courtroom, and then there's a fade out, and then it's a chess board, and it's the judge playing, I think, with the uh, with the defense attorney to pass the time, and it was it was this very very interesting um, parallel where the, the the courtroom was was where the real chess game was played, mm-hmm. and so I saw the chess game between them as okay well this this is a very intricate thinking game between the allies and and the axis okay see and yeah i just looked at it more as of a criticism of the i'm blanking on the character's name the engineer's you know ability because he was making 
not recommendations. He was directing yeah. that side, and it was just poor decision after poor decision, which is paralleled here with his overconfidence and knowing how to fly the plane and read the fuel meter and just being sloppy because he didn't know that the emergency tank was full or empty. And errors can happen in that regard, but not owning up to his instead of saying, I don't know, being very right. confident. Oh, yeah, I checked it. It's fine. It's like, oh, well, no, I'm wrong. Yeah, and then the plane is overweight, and then we can't make the right. We don't don't have enough gas, and we don't. And in that way, it's almost like I don't know if you saw um, Triple Frontier on Netflix with no, I haven't Ben seen Affleck that yet. and yeah, Oscar, Oscar Isaac. I'm not going to. It's in my queue. It's an excellent film. I've heard it. Yes, quite you, good. You need to see it. And that's another case where every single person who knew better deliberately made the, the wrong, wrong choice. Choice, and that's what I see here. Every everyone. Uh, despite from the German side, their mm-hmm. good intentions to survive and to right. go on and to spread whatever they make absolutely the, the wrong decision. Oftentimes. And the sinking, which again is actually a fairly, this is a relatively terrifying sequence of them enclosed in this plane and just about drowning. And one of the actors, as I understand it, Literally was drowning because he didn't know how to swim. So that sequence was doubly terrifying for that individual. It wasn't important. I can't remember exactly that, which one it was. That horrifies me that they put an actor in the water who didn't know how to swim. Oh, there were swimmers that were yeah. close. They had the camera right there. It's not like it was. Yeah. Well, the abyss, you had people in the water who were perfectly trained, and Ed Harris almost died. Mm-hmm. And as did Cameron himself. As did Cameron himself. That's right. One more issue that I had on the on the genocide theme. Just this was just a note that I occasionally would pop into my head, and I just can't go through it without repeating this. Mm-hmm. But when you went into Auschwitz as a as a future victim. You shed everything. You know, they took your bags and eventually they took your clothes and they led you into the gas chamber and they gassed you and then somebody else pulled you out. And took your gold and, teeth. And then, then they took your gold key, teeth and then they cremated you. And the gold teeth went in, went into a, a, a room with all of your other stuff, your, your, your case and all of your clothes. And all of that was sorted through by a, a select few chosen Jews. Mm-hmm. In a, in a building that was near the entrance. And uh, that's where they went through uh, all the money and all the gold teeth. And, and uh, if they found anything in your luggage, the books, or if you, you know, had an heirloom lamp or uh, spectacles. And, and it was seen as this room where this untold wealth was taking place. But, of course, the, the Germans were sorting through that. And there was grift going on. You know, you had the guards were taking everything that they possibly could. And there were, it was a money-making machine because, you know, they had to pay uh, uh, the railroad back for the tickets because the Jews were paying their own tickets to their own extermination through this process. And that that room was nicknamed by by the survivors mm-hmm. who were working in Auschwitz as Canada with a K hmm. because Canada in in the in the Eastern European frame of mind, not just in Jews' mind, was this land of unbelievable wealth and and resources canada was this place where everybody wanted to go so you had everything in canada it was amazing and here we are watching a film about canada and it does seem to be a wealth of although primarily probably things that we wouldn't associate 
in that room, the people, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the regular Canadians, the French Canadians, the Inuits, the, the Anglo Canadians, they, they, they seem to be the resource, the Hutterites being the very noble farmers. Well, yeah. And they have freedom. Yeah, freedom. Yeah, which is the most critical thing. It's greatest treasure of all. Right. Liberty. And it looks like the scarecrow is giving a Heil Hitler sign. <laughs> I had never noticed that before. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, man. It's pretty scary. <laughs> and Portman here is pretty. Just how they all stand. They all stand differently. They all do. Yeah. Throughout and the it's, entire movie. They've all got different levels of confidence or you can kind of see like that gentleman on the left who's leering just a little bit too much right with the black shirt mm -hmm. it's like the only black shirt in the movie yes there there's a i, I hesitate to say this What's but I, f I feel like this would i would i would be doing a disservice if i knew this and didn't repeat it there are hutterite colonies uh, in alberta okay and you, you pass them on the way to Lethbridge or McLeod or wherever you're going, Port McLeod. And um, there's there are two modes of thinking of the Hutterites, and there's there's tons of them. And they are kind of like – I mean, they're not, not dissimilar not from the like, Amish. Yeah, not like the Amish, but, I mean, they drive cars and do right, things like but that. But they're very isolated by their own choice. Very, very much so. Their own internal – economy and mm -hmm. you know culture and very communal like this mm -hmm. lead, eating together and so forth and and ah uh, yes the bread the, the bread like the, give us this day i mean is this not mm -hmm. the overt symbol yeah, it, of the moment of we are sharing our bread with these people who don't deserve it right and, and it's apparently the bread's not very good but you know what you take what you can get yeah they were the hutterites were very Content because, well, it's bread. Mm -hmm. and Simple needs. Yeah, exactly. And pretty soon we're at the introduction of Anton Walbrook, who is just phenomenal. And he plays the bad guy in Colonel Blimp. Not no, bad, no, not the bad the guy. He's German. the German. He plays the, the German. good German. Yeah, he's yeah. the German. Yeah, bad guys. And he is the bad guy in the red shoes. The, the ballerina director. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I finally found found that when I was when I was sick and mm -hmm. quarantined in this room over here. I watched the Red Shoes. Gotcha. It's probably, not, probably not an optimal environment to watch that, <laughs> but that's fine. Suffering is, from COVID is not an optimal time to watch the Red Shoes. No, when you're suffering and watching suffering, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do like. I mean, this right here it really shows Vogel. Am I getting his name right, Vogel? Yeah, the character. How he's. He is definitely not your stereotypical Nazi, and it is a pretty interesting portrayal, and it's pretty nuanced mm -hmm. in that he finds all this very interesting, and he is desiring to, you know, he's very conflicted about his role, right, at least in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, he gives the, uh, the, the rosary to the dying Olivier in an act of kindness, and then feels we're getting, tears the queen, and you know, t digs the swastika into the wall. But you kind of get the sense that he is a man who is not happy with his spot. And obviously in this sequence, they more well define that. Yeah, well, and I think that he, again, to use a moniker I previously used, and you see it in all kinds of films, he's the good German. Yeah, but it, that's one of those where from the propaganda perspective 
again, I was impressed that they would portray who would be, you know, mm-hmm. the enemy as a pretty sympathetic character. And at least understandable. Right. Right. I, I certainly understand his motives here. Like, I understand wanting to serve your country. I understand mm-hmm. being born in Germany and growing up in Germany and wanting, wanting to love Germany yeah. and serve your country. I'm patriotic, too. Absolutely. I love this country. So I, I completely get that. And, and what at what point do you have to jump off that train? At what point do you have to look at your political situation and say, this shit ain't working? Mm-hmm. You know, there were there were tons of people in Germany who felt that way. There were kids uh, in in the western part of Germany particularly in Westphalia, who who just, uh, and around Hamburg and Stuttgart, who didn't want anything to do with the Nazi ideology and refused to join the Hitler Youth, and they, they, they formed their own uh, bands. <laughs> That's a bad German. Yeah. But... <laughs> it's a bad Russian. Bad Russian, sorry. But it was just very interesting to be portrayed in what is, you know, a, a classified a propaganda film. Right, right. It's very nuanced. Mm-hmm. It's a very nuanced it's, point of view. And it's sympathetic to that specific individual. And that's the thing that one of, that struck me while watching it is there are very few, if any, true stereotypes. Right? The only stereotype I can truly think of in this movie that has aged poorly, if you will, is Olivier's, you know, servant. The right. Idiot. That's about the only caricature, that at least that we define as a caricature these days. Because here, the Nazi is, he, he's not twirling his mustache, <laughs> right? And the two junior off, or members of the yeah. crew, I mean, they are probably the closest to characters of just kind of dumb, emotional wrecks. Tools. Tools, if you will. But the rest of the characters are all pretty thoughtful. Even if they're objectively bad, they're given a certain degree of depth, which was refreshing and unexpected. And it's a it's a pretty interesting setup that Pressburger Pressburger wrote all of Powell's films mm-hmm. and was on set every day with Powell. It's almost like the Cohen brothers, is right. what I understand of That's how they operated. Right? Basically, one's really the writer, one's really the director, but they right. go co credit. Yeah, yeah, or the Wachowski brothers, right? Or Sisters. We're going to go with Wachowski Brothers. Yeah, uh, originally. So, uh, Pressburger sets up this. First, you're introduced to Portman for about 20 minutes or so, mm-hmm. the captain, and and then you're introduced to the engineer, and, and then you're introduced to Vogel, and you kind of just do this round robin. Mm-hmm. And so you, you get a, a feel for all the characters in turn. And they're all given their time. Right. They're not nameless, faceless. Right. On either the good side or the bad. And this is probably the third or fourth. I've probably seen three or four. I mean, 49th parallel. Uh, one of our aircraft is missing. The life and death of Colonel Blimp. Um, red shoes. Um, the red shoes. Um, I've seen one more. Uh, uh, Black uh, Narcissus. Yeah, I haven't seen Black Narcissus. Oh yet. my I god, I that is genius. Oh yeah, I don't, genius. I know. Yeah. Don't don't make me feel bad uh, on your podcast. So I've seen like <laughs> five, and and this is like a ten year period. Like in Black Narcissus this is 1950 or 1949 or something. Um, I think I got a like a handle mm-hmm. on a on an Archer film, and um, like I'm not. Uh, it, it looks like an Archer film. It right. feels like an Archer film. There's a there's a definitely a certain identifiable style. Yeah, despite it, the despite the fact that it's black and white, because when you think of Archer films, you just immediately think, think Technicolor. Technicolor. Right. 
particularly black narcissus, which mm-hmm. is like just and red shoes really powerful. Right. I I got problems with red shoes. That's fine. But, we'll discuss it later. Yeah. We Heil Hitler. Good night, with, John Boy. <laughs> with no pants on. Yes, I thought that was comical. I mean, that must be on purpose, but I don't know. I didn't live in the 40s. No. I, I mean, he's got his jacket on, what appears to be his jacket. Maybe it's just a heavy flannel, but. Well, it's cold up there. I was about to say, it's cold. They didn't have a heater. I don't see a fire burning. Oh, so I was going to the, to finish my thought on the Hutterites. Oh, there, there were there were, there were two modes of thoughts, which were we, you know, we look at Hutterites like uh, the Amish and so on and so forth, and they're fine. They're just separate. They just got their own thing. There were Ukrainians in Alberta, too, Ukrainian settlements where they still spoke Ukrainian, mm-hmm. not Russian, Ukrainian. Ukrainian. And Ukrainian dance was actually like a, a class that you could take in high school and just like the Highland dance in some some schools that we have today. And and it was it was remarkably positive, I would say. And then you had these other Canadians who would tend to be more prejudiced, who would look at the Hutterites basically like Europeans looked at gypsies. Okay. Like they're they're thieves, lock your car when you're going through their towns try not to associate with them. And I, I found it kind of, for lack of a better phrase, very un-Canadian how, <laughs> how some Canadians thought about them. It was very, very discriminatory. Yeah, but I'm, I, I would imagine it's one of those things where all those things are based on somebody's experience. Right. You know? Right. And then all of a sudden, the legend becomes truth. Right. And then one thing leads to another, and then you're, you know... Next thing Stitching you know. stars on their jackets. Yeah, and, exactly. I mean, yeah. in the grossest, most over-the-top, yeah. Right. Well, they're all ready together. All we have to do is hurt them. And the Makes same life a lot star. easier. Right. I, I just now, saw this as like a complete overreaction of this this guy helping out with the bread. And it was sort of, let's let's freak out because he's helping out with the bread. Well, I, I you think they aren't freaking out at that point because he's helping out. They're freaking out because he's gone. Right. And is it are they terrified that he has left or is it a function of, OK, we actually are in a dangerous environment with people we think are our allies? Well, I mean, they are an enemy country. They know? are, but they also are tending to identify the Hutterites as fellow Germans. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is one of those where it's it's kind of nice and open of them and also incredibly foolhardy, especially by Portman is his character rather. Yeah. in trying to convert them to the proper way of thinking in his mind certainly certainly <clears throat> officers in in the Wehrmacht were responsible for the ideological health of their troops it was different in say the soviet union the, the red army which just says it all red army right uh, where you had a, a political commissar who was in a separate chain of command and attached to units and res- res- responsible for the the ideological health of, of that unit. <clears throat> the political commissars were actually, they were deemed so dangerous that during the invasion of the Soviet Union, Hitler actually singled them out of uh, in battle or in any form, anytime you come that. across a, a commissar. He has had a specific order for it, the commissar order of 1941. And you, will, you will immediately execute all of these mm-hmm. people for Bolshevik ideas. And oddly enough, the 
the Nazis never did that. And I, I think it might be because the Wehrmacht was something that had existed before, uh, before the, the takeover. And, and everyone who ran the Wehrmacht had, had fought in the First World War under the Imperial Army. And maybe that just wasn't possible. He didn't do it in the Luftwaffe either. But like I said, that was an ideological tool right. uh, from birth. So I mean, this just looks like Delic. This looks like, uh, I mean, I don't want to say a Norman Rockwell painting, but it, I mean, it does look. You could see why it would be incredibly appealing. Yeah. And notice nobody's tired. Everybody's happy. <laughs> no yeah, smiling. And I mean, that looks like a lot of work. Looks, yeah. You know, but when you work together. Yeah. Lessens the load for all. It's like that scene in uh, Witness. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Witness with oh, yeah. uh, Harrison Ford? Yeah, we got a barn to build and a day to do it. Get your ass out here, you know. <laughs> and they did it. But yeah, amber waves of grain. Yeah, very similar. And of course, the goatee. You know, very similar to how. You, oh, by the way, the the few Hutterites that I did meet, and I did meet a few um, again in, in South Southern mm-hmm. Alberta, were. KD Lang is actually from Lethbridge okay. in Southern Alberta. But they're all, without exception, all of the the males were wearing overalls. Yeah, they're very consistent. Did they also have the rope belt? I don't know why you'd have the rope belt with the overalls. Uh, I, mean, I don't remember the rope belt. But the, oddly enough, I, I ran into one in uh, Tim Hortons. We had a lovely conversation, mm-hmm. and I don't remember what the conversation was about, but it was like he was ordering like an ice cap in, in Tim Hortons. It was like, well, and he had a wallet. Yeah, and it's just not traditionally what just, you would think of. Hutterites have wallets, and they and they right. buy Tim's just right. like all other Canadians. Like, yeah, how else like, am I going to carry my money around? Like, I thought you like you have money. You didn't you didn't trade a chicken. <laughs> You're not like making uh, uh, coins out of wood, or it's like no. <laughs> oh, you're a human being. Oh, exactly. you're a person with. With real things. Okay. We haven't completely rejected your society. We just don't want to be hundred percent involved. Any, any kind of a foreshadowing there. It looks like it might be rain or a storm is coming. I can't remember the exact phrase. Oh, I thought that was great foreshadowing. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's kind of obvious, yeah. but it is one of those where it's like, oh, yeah, I get it. And this is really a tremendous writing on. Oh, we are Germans. Yeah, yeah. Just, just both sides of this conversation. You know, they're both powerful. They're both you could see where it would be compelling to the target audience. You know, Portman's to the Hutterites that he thinks he can sway. And the response of the, the, the denouncing of the whole ideology is it's really well done. And this is kind of the centerpiece of the movie when I saw it was this is where it really went from. Yeah, this is pretty good. To, oh, my gosh, this is pretty excellent. There, there's lots of things to unpack in this speech, and and I thought the speech was just given so magnificently with the, with a lightning behind him, mm-hmm. and you've got these this push in on this girl here, like the things that you're saying completely conflict with everything I've been taught since I was a child. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I read on her face, like, but but he might be reading as adoration. She's right. So right. I'm really swaying this one. Right. Without yeah, not so, recognizing your audience, I think is the phrase there. Yeah. Considering her personal history with the Nazis in specific. But it, it does convey into this great fear, particularly in, in British and Canadian society, of uh, the the theory of the Quisling. Right? So Vidkun Quisling was this guy in 
Norway, mm-hmm. uh, who was a, a fascist sympathizer. And when when uh, Germany invaded Norway, uh, he led a native Norwegian movement to help the Nazis take over the government. Right. And then he became the fascist dictator of Norway under Nazi occupation. And it had happened so fast that it it scared the shit out of the British. They're like, holy shit, that could happen here. Mm-hmm. And there was There's a guy. There's always lunatics. There's always. And, and there was a, a fascist uh, uh, union in Britain, and I can't remember the guy who ran it, but it, they, they locked him up. Said, nah. And, and they, they banned his, his uh, political party, and then he tried to squeak in in the 50s. Well, after he got out of jail, he tried to reorganize this fascist movement. Was that not terribly successful? It was horribly uh, <laughs> uh successful and oh, horribly crazy. horribly inefficient and and didn't go anywhere but oswald mosley actually was his name now that, that actually that sounds familiar that yeah. does sound familiar and and name. again there was another one in canada and and the great fear and particularly when you look at what happened to the french government of mm-hmm. how Pétain had taken over and then all of a sudden there are all these french that are just willing to go along with the occupying forces like where the heck fuck did these people come from yeah, we're just at war with these people well, and, i mean the exact same thing happened in germany yeah, well, the fifth, yeah, they called it the fifth column, right? Because mm-hmm. there's four columns normally in a marching army. So the fifth column is that one that is, that is uh, subversive and, and takes over from pretty insidious. underneath. And like I was saying, the, the boond in America, they were seen as the fifth column in the United States. And there was one in Canada. So uh, I could almost see this as, as a reassuring of, of telling Canadians, like, look, you've got a lot of Germans in Canada. Yep. And the great majority of them are not interested at all. Yeah, I mean in this idea. In the yeah, the immigrants here portraying mm-hmm. as finding this home that may present its own challenges, but right. Their freedom in Peter's speech here. Like I said, this is I find this just a remarkable performance by Walbrook and just the writing to be way on point. I think this is and I, and I saw it very comparable to uh something that a lot of Americans even today are still this being 2020, it's like the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Compact. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Mayflower Compact is just like beaten into you as a child, and at least in, in, in my uh, grade yeah. school, of, hey, we fled persecution mm-hmm. and, and we're here to live together. And that's what I saw in this scene is, the, is like a Canadian style of the Mayflower yeah, Compact. Which is it's not a shocker when you think about it for a second but you know we're also very centric on ourselves it's right. kind of initially surprised like what do you mean it's a land of opportunity and freedom in canada it's never the way i've envisioned it no it was no, just some place that was cold it was colder with hockey <laughs> everybody has a stick it can't be friendly i don't get it no but i mean it is and this is one of those where it really does also speak to what i would imagine the um, their perception of the american viewing audience would be you know, this is consistent with traditional American ideals, at least the way they're always presented, right? And it's real effective. I'm going to try this uh, chocolate stout. It is Mexican hot chocolate inspired. Stone brewing. A pretty darn consistent good beer maker. That Carbock chocolate stout was awesome. <clears throat> I haven't been through uh, Anton Walbrook's... Um, filmography nor have i i'm not that familiar with it beyond these films at least you know i've never really registered him as a, it's like ooh, he's one of the greats but you know you look at these performances and it's like uh, he's kind of one of the, the greats at least at that particular time 
I was really unfamiliar with him until the 49th parallel. Yeah, I, I, I was too. And I didn't even know he was in Blimp until until a subsequent you know yeah. watch right then. Well, I was reading it. Oh, okay. And I was reading on the 49th parallel. I was also in also in Colonel Blimp. I've also seen that. What? What, what did he play in he? that? He was the good germ. And actually, the wisest character of the whole bunch. Here's Kelly McGillis. <laughs> Little inside joke. <laughs> So that's a light switch on the on the wall, the old style. Yeah, which is actually, I, I assume that's consistent with reality at the time. I've never been into a Hutterite colony, but I would imagine that they're, I mean, they're using tractors. And yeah. They're not against any of that. They're just communal. Because I'm just, yeah, you're right. They probably even have TVs. <laughs> so the the escape attempt where he mentions... He wants to get onto a ship in Vancouver and mm-hmm. stow away to Japan. Yep. So Japan signed a signed a uh, tripartite act with Italy and Germany uh, before the war. And so, in theory, if they make it to Japan, then they might as well be they, re-entering Germany. They might they might find a way back into Germany, but the world being so divided at war like I, I don't know how successful that would be it just seems like a like a stretch and again also thinking in okay this is this is after the outbreak of the war this is before the fall of france mm-hmm. this is uh before the entry of america into the war you know was was canada still trading with japan well japan didn't japan didn't invade any of britain's colonies in east asia until december 7th they they hit like ten places on the same day. Hong Kong was one of them. Singapore. So it's in theory, I suppose you could find passage from Japan to to Germany. But after Pearl Harbor, you know, Canada wanted nothing to do with Japan. Right. And this is a a good time to bring up um, the Canadian effort in the Second World War was was pretty much unparalleled by any any commonwealth nation um, that was under the british flag uh, save probably only the, the australians who were probably like a like a third and the canadians sent uh, five full armies to to europe one of them actually went to to uh, north africa and fought with a shitload of australians um, and then on d-day two of the beaches were taken by the canadians mm-hmm. Uh, who then fought all the way through the Fale Gap and all the way into Germany. And there's this conception of, of Canadians being this very, I don't want to say laissez-faire, but rather relaxed people and so on and so forth. But if you if you look between 1898 and 1952, like they fought like five wars. Right. And and since then, like they, they didn't fight in Vietnam, but as as a under... under uh, What's his name? Pearson, who was prime minister for a time. Uh, they got heavily involved in the UN, and Canadian peacekeepers have been like this enormous uh, influence as a peacekeeping army all over the world. And for for the last twenty years, they've been uh, pretty much occupying one third of Afghanistan. And when I lived in Canada, there was the uh, a shot record by a Canadian sniper broke the the Allied record in Afghanistan. I think it was mm-hmm. like three thousand yards or something like that. It was like a mile and a right. half or whatever. And uh, 
I did it with a Barrett, the 50 caliber mm-hmm. Barrett rifle, blew the guy's backpack off. And it's like, oh, the wind is wrong. We self-corrected <laughs> and then took out the guy, which I'm sure with a 50 caliber was not a pretty, pretty sight. No, I would imagine. But that, that made the news in Canada. And, and then the minute, the minute it came out, they suppressed it because there's this idea of, well, Canadians are not overtly killers. They're not, they're not there to kill people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't have a problem with that. If that guy was a Taliban, he's an enemy. Yeah. Right. By but, all means, but, take his fucking head off. I mean, political wars are... But they, they, much more important yes. to the effort than the actual it is but they've, they've got a great history of peacekeeping they got a great history of uh, of uh, of uh, succeeding in warfare um they do change over time and the boer war and the first world war um, and particularly some of the smaller activities they've been in it was very much well king and country and the empire is going and we are a colony but after they become a commonwealth there's this very slow pull away from the empire. And by the time you get to the second world war, you have parliament in Ottawa actually waiting, I think two full days. Okay. Uh, they didn't knee jerk reaction of, well, we're going to declare war on Germany too. They actually waited and they did it on purpose. They did it to let London know we don't have to go to war. Mm. We can choose. In fact, if we choose to halfway through this thing, we can, always we can leave. Right. The interesting part of it, despite the fact that you had this these divisions that were all 100% Canadian, was the Canadian army was so multiple and so large and so influential that and they had absolutely, unlike the Americans, they had absolutely no problem with integration. So you found uh, Canadian RAF officers and Canadian army officers integrated into the British army. Mm-hmm. They just wore just a, a different uniform and it just had a, had a label on the top that just said Canada. And, right. And, and that was it. The, the greatest... The greatest thing I Which saw I think is recently problematic. It, it might be, yeah. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't want my soldiers under the control of a, a separate foreign, foreign power. Yeah, it's just separate, yeah, my, answerable my to somebody else. But under yeah. the Allied war effort, particularly as you get into 1943, 1944, and when the Americans show up, uh, that happens a lot. Even, even with the in, in the in Chafe, the supreme headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you had Brits answering to Americans, and Americans answering to Brits, and it was it was very integrated at, in the high command. But they weren't always separate. They were from separate armies. They were, right. they were following a, a command structure that was integrated. Right. Yeah. Um, As opposed to the uniforms. Which right, were, right, right, so right. That's, yeah, that's true. Yes. Ooh, get to the food bar. Yeah. yeah. I, I found this, this all fascinating of, of, of how things were done then. And I wanted to pause that and find the menu on the wall. How much was the sandwich? And what does roast beef cost back then? And there's a lot of that in, um, if you ever get a chance, The Plot Against America, which is on Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. Um, I, I've heard the name, but I don't know a darn thing about it. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a series based on, well, what if Lindbergh had run in the 1940 election and mm-hmm. won? Okay. Um, which was Roosevelt's third election, which everyone was saying, you know, he shouldn't be running. Cause he probably shouldn't be doing This seems like a long time. Right. And and uh, he, he did, and he won. And I think I already said he won against Alfred Smith, who was, who was the Catholic uh, Republican mm-hmm. nominee. Um, but it was, it's, it's based on, on, you know, America, 1940. War is already broken out, and the, the Jews in America are already scared. And, and what does it mean when you have an anti-Semite like Lindbergh, who was a very popular Republican, win, win that election? Yep, 45 cents. Yeah, there we go. Sliced ham with new potato salad, 35 cents. Fried ham and egg, 30 cents. 
done. I'll take three. Yeah, but tomato and bacon is 30. That's kind of shocking. Oh, yeah. I guess bacon. So, anyway, if you... If, that movie looks like they shot it in 1940 in color. Like, mm -hmm. it's... it's uh, For that series, rather. It's, it's very... Very well put together, and you do see things in the background, and obviously they would have had to fact check it. I would imagine it, so, right? right? It's interesting to look at. Winona Ryder is in it. If, the, oh, if you ever need I've an impetus to watch anything, just say <laughs> Winona Ryder's in it. And John Turturro. And this, I, I guess, this is like a. A sausage, like a kolache. Yeah, I about to say it looks like say. a kolache. I don't, I don't know if it would we, be. We but say kolache because in Texas, checks are so prevalent. So mm -hmm. We call it, you know, even though a sausage and bread is not really a kolache as far as Czech culture is concerned, but it's um, bratwurst. Best bratwurst I ever had was in Germany. There is a, a my wife and I went to a, a German Alpine restaurant that's over here in Santa Fe. That's pretty good. Had some liverwurst. Interesting. Tomato and bacon. Yes, that's the one that I saw. Sliced chicken, chicken and lettuce, 35. Five cents. Yeah. I thought Here this we go, was... just some nice, friendly Canadians traversing, yeah, just... traversing the land. Going to Winnipeg, mm -hmm. which is another Canadian joke. Going to Winnipeg. It's commercial up there. Rapid City. Isn't Medicine Hat shown on here somewhere? Yeah, Medicine Hat, Alberta. Mm -hmm. I've been too many times. Although there was Indian Head. Yeah, that's another one. Head smashed in Buffalo Jump. I've heard another, of another great town. <laughs> An indigenous town, First Nation town. Not Indian? Not Indian. But even though they have a town called Regina. Indian Regina. <laughs> but they had the Moose Jaw. Moose Jaw, yeah. Huge railway, railroad junction in Moose Jaw. Oil fields all over Moose Jaw. This just looks like the most, I mean, to. This I reminds mean, me a lot of what Hitchcock eventually used for North by Northwest, Northwest right yeah. there. I was just thinking of North by what, Northwest. I mean, the, all of this was shot in Alberta. Um, I, I found it astounding that anyone would ever think to walk from Winnipeg to Saskatoon to Calgary like that. That's a hike. That's, I mean, that's like a thousand miles. Yeah, it's a that's bit, insane. It's pretty ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're not talking about walking from Houston to San Antonio. You probably do that in a couple of days. Like oh, if you really put your be, mind to it. It'd be a long hike. Yeah. But you could probably get it done in what? Oh, yeah. Three, four, so if you three? think you know, Caesar's legions were marching 20 miles a day. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you think. It's 300 miles, roughly. Yeah, you're probably looking at like four or five days. Weeks. Yeah, but you can't fucking do Winnipeg to Calgary. Like, that's that's. I'd shoot myself. <laughs> and they have Canadian jokes about um, the plains of you know the farmer in Saskatchewan who um, whose wife left him, uh, and he cried for three days because he he kept. At no point in time over that three-day period did his wife ever leave his vision because it's so flat. So he's still crying after three days. He still, <laughs> still sees his either. wife. But she's on the horizon. Oh, okay. Horizon's like 60 miles away, not 15. 
Now, is that Banff right there? That's Banff National Park, yeah. So this is this is the Canadian Pacific Railway going into Banff, uh, which so this is the front, not front range. The uh, it's just past Canmore, heading into Banff Townsite, and I drove that route every month for about seven years. And that's the train station in Old Town Banff. Certainly is lovely, even in black and white. Oh, it's just gorgeous. And the Canadian Pacific had these. So this this is a, a Banff Avenue bridge that's across the Bow River. And the Banff Springs Hotel is to the left, and the Fairmont Hotel is to the right. Kirby came up to see us one year, and he stayed there. Mm-hmm. And this is an actual parade of First Nations that Powell shot while he was there. And then, of course, you have the introduction of the Mountie, the Quiz Essential Canadian which is now today seen as a kind of a racist image. What, a, a Mountie? Yeah. Why is a Mountie seen as something of a racist? The, the, the RC, well, um, in... And who is actually thinking of in, racist? In the 1800s, the Mounties were used to, to suppress the First Nations in a, in a very, uh, very much an Andrew Jackson type of resettlement mm-hmm. way. And so there's a, there's a really, really bad history in between uh, the RCMP and all of the First Nations. And I wouldn't say that the past 10 years under under this glorious liberal leader of Justin Trudeau mm-hmm. has alleviated that image at all. If, in fact, uh, Trudeau has probably just given them almost carte blanche to keep doing um, a lot of what they have been doing, which has been ar- arresting natives without cause uh, on reservations. Um, it, it, their abuse of power is becoming more and more a problem, or some would say – it's always been a problem. We're just learning about it. But for for probably a century or more, it's it's been the image of law and order in Canada. Right. Which and is the way I've always perceived it myself. Sure. The the honorable upstanding. Actually, my wife and I took a – we took a vacation to Halifax um, around 2000, 2001. We stayed in New Brunswick and – Went to PEI. I've had a great time all around the Atlantic provinces, and we saw this hysterical commercial that was on, um, and it was this uh, it was this American in 1898 who's going up to the Yukon. Mm-hmm. So he landed in Skagway, Alaska, and he did that trek up, you know, with the mules and everything. And he's at the top, and he goes into the customs office, and he comes in, and he's got the spittoon and just acting like a complete. Yank buffoon, like it was a complete caricature of what you would think an American would look like in that in that situation, behave, yeah. right? Almost out of Jeremiah Johnson, and then 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 behind the desk is this red coat sitting there. You're not coming into Canada, eh? You're not bringing your American ways in here. You go back down to that territory that you bought from the Rushkis. And it was it was really it was so serious. It was absolutely so serious. I think it was a campaign commercial for someone who was running for office. Really, and we sat there and laughed at it for like an hour. And we it was the whole week we're in Halifax. We're like, you're not bringing your Yankee ways in here, eh? (laughs) It was really really funny. Powell's so good with the character studies here. These watching the yeah. Watching the sailors kind of lose their nerve and freak out just a little yeah. bit. The Mountie always gets his man. Yep. <laughs> Very consistent. Dudley do right there. And then there are two. 
in some of those scenes in the background, you can actually see Sulphur Mountain, which overlooks uh, Banff. You know, there, I've been to Banff so many times I can't count. We used to sit in restaurants and just look out at Sulphur Mountain. I've climbed Sulphur Mountain. They've got a, a gondola that goes up to that ridge. That's a very distinctive uh, mountaintop that you pass on your way in. Okay. So definitely all shot on location. Oh, yeah. Which, yes, I, I know that it was. I mean, that's the valley that, that goes into British Columbia. If you were to look at that valley now, there's this enormous cut right through the center, and it's the, the Highway 1. And if you've ever been there, you can see the absurdity, even now, of running into the forest to escape. It would be weeks before you hit the border. Um, and then it would be weeks more before you found a road or a yeah, town. Yeah, you would definitely starve to death or human being. by a bear. Yeah. bear. You would be like Lewis and Clark walking through. It would it would just be, unless you're Bear Grylls, you'd die. This is more chopped up in terms of the mountain ridges in the background. This looks more like Yoho, but uh, I, I could find nothing in anything that I read that it was shot anywhere near Yoho. That is not Lake Louise. I don't know where that is. It looks a little bit like Emerald Lake, which again is in Yoho. That's Lake Minnewanka, which is just 15 minutes from Banff. And my brother and I uh, fished there when he came up in 2012. And dumb question because I've never been there. Is it a national? That's a national park. That's, a in, national that's park, inside uh, Banff National Park. Yeah. yeah. So the 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 Canadian Rockies north of the border are pretty much divided between two huge national parks in Alberta. One is Banff National Park in the bottom, and the one uh, north is Jasper National Park, which is Closer is the wrong word, but I would say more in the direction of Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And then across the Continental Divide is where British Columbia starts, and that's where you have Yoho National Park and then Glacier National Park, which actually goes into the United States. It's um, Yes. It's a, yeah. Similar. And that's where the Going to the Sun Road is. And the so, introduction of Leslie Howard. Yeah. Who I can't tell you how surprised I was. When I realized that his character was not supposed to be an American. Really? Oh, I, I was convinced of it. I, I really thought that this was... Them crossing over and then running No, into... no, no. I thought he was an American actually vacationing up there. Oh, okay. Because he, in some ways he kind of fits what I would imagine a stereotype of a somewhat erudite and sort of silly, you know, American would be like. Kind of... Erudite is a good word. Hey, oh, thank you. But it's, it's one of those where he's seemingly unaware of the dangers. Aloof. Yeah. Well, not aloof because he's definitely getting engaged. Right, right. But it's one of those where he's just blindly unaware and so optimistic, it's sort of silly. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of where I, I, I was really surprised because I didn't think that this was, oh, they put an American here because he's kind of a, a foolish, goofy character who gets, who then turns. Right. And as I, I looked at that, knowing this was a propaganda piece, that I was going, well, that's really clever if they're speaking to the American population. But uh, it applies to any nationality that he is. And it turns out he's really Canadian. Yeah. Which, like I said, it's kind of, I was kind of disappointed. That's what I thought it was. But now, he was a huge international no, he, star. He was ginormous. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was, you know what movie just like he was already famous in, throughout the 1930s. He, he lived and worked in Hollywood. But you know what movie that he was just super famous for being by the time this came out? Well, don't. Gone, gone with the wind. wind. Yeah. yeah, I knew it was Gone with the Wind. Yeah, Ashley I, Wilkes and Gone with the Wind. I didn't know if Fucking you were going to come up. Everybody in the United States knew who Leslie Howard. Was. Oh yeah, he was everybody. Did. Probably the biggest star at that yeah. particular time. Pro probably in in America, I guarantee you, he was more famous than Olivier. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt. You know, there were people that went to, to see Gone with the Wind two, three times just to see him and his character dies two-thirds of the way through the film. Spoilers. <laughs> but he was deliberately... <laughs> he was deliberately chosen uh, uh, by Powell uh, because, because of that exposure in him. Because he knew that if, if they put Leslie Howard on the bill, people would see it. Americans would go. Yeah. But you can see the contempt... Yeah, that Philip Armstrong Scott. I mean, that just sounds like a British name or an American. It name. struck me as yeah, very American. Very American just, name. It, it just did. It's not like an archer symbol in the background. There's two of them. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a proto archer symbol. Yep. Or the big fan of mechanicals, and that's a gear. Now I do have to ask, and I don't, I don't mean to be you know coy or anything about it, but. Who the fuck is keeping Picasso's in their teepee in the middle of a forest? Leslie Scott. <laughs> Leslie Scott. <laughs> He's that kind of guy. Leslie Howard. I don't Leslie know why Howard. I said Leslie Scott. Oh, it's Philip Armstrong. Yeah. Armstrong Scott. That's what it is. I mean, I, I saw that as like. But a, that's also one of the things, like I said, I was just reading too much into it. That's why I thought he was American because it's like. You know, I can see kind of a subtle criticism of Americans not recognizing the value of the items that they have. Oh, for sure. So that's kind of why I thought this was. And okay, okay. Near you is reading about the natives mm -hmm. and how he's fascinated with the natives. And to the Nazis, they're not worth being fascinated very, about. Well, yeah, and then he doubly insults them by comparing the their behavior to some of the more ruthless of the First Nations? Right. Okay. Right. That's right. Well, you're not in Canada. You can say Indian. I know. Just one of those. <laughs> I wanted to stay consistent. <laughs> and here's, you know, the, the Nazi wants the cold shower. Right. He is so rigid. Yeah. And uncompromising. I know here's something good, but I purposely choose against it. And it's actually one of the it's, it's one of the few laughs after that for since the Olivier, Olivier part, where there's some actual obvious humor at play. Yeah. Every year in Calgary, the entire city shuts down for about two weeks, and they have stampede. Right. And stampede is something is, of a big deal, as I understand. It is. It is crazy. It is absolutely crazy. That city. Um, it's, it's like they're the closest thing that I can associate it to is the Houston livestock show and rodeo, mm -hmm. which, you know, I've, I've been to every year that I've lived in Houston and, uh, Houston has one for two weeks and, and we held it in the Ash Dome and outs and the same compound reliant. Um, I, I, and it's always packed and it's always busy. Now I would say that the attendance to the rodeo is way, way more than say, uh, stampede. Okay. Okay. So if let's just throw some numbers out there, they're probably wrong. If three hundred thousand people are going to Stampede every day, it wouldn't surprise me if it were five hundred thousand at the rodeo. But that's strictly because of the population of the city. Of right. In Calgary, there's only one point one million people. So they have a. But if you talk to anybody, it just seems like everybody goes. Like well, it's probably like seventy or eighty percent of the population of Calgary goes, goes. to see Stampede. And so, anyway, where I was going with that was uh, on the back entrance off the 
off the subway. No, it's not a subway. It's a light rail. Um, I think it's Victoria Station. The, the, in, the entire back entrance is uh, a compound of First Nations. Okay. It's entirely devoted to um, the, the Crowfoot and the Blackfoot tribes teaching you uh, how they lived uh, before the white man showed up or even during, during the colonial era and into the 1800s. And they have real teepees built by real natives. Mm -hmm. um, and they, were, they could adjust them. And it was amazing to, to learn how they developed things like the heat flaps. And you could have fires inside. And, and uh, it really remi reminded me of uh, what I learned in history class about the Mongolian yurts. Okay. And how the, the Mongols just took their yurts everywhere. They conquered everything. Mm -hmm. Very, very similar. And, and of course, uh, um, uh, they had they had classes that lasted uh, for about fifty minutes, and you could just go in and whenever you wanted to, just walk through. And it was it was utterly fascinating. So I understand how someone like uh, uh, George Armstrong Scott or mm -hmm. Philip Armstrong Scott, Scott could 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 really just like deep dive into this and, and get lost and adopt it, yeah, for sure. In his in his Western clothes and his ascot. Oh yes, he is a sweater. He is very civilized. <laughs> Reading Thomas Mann. Yes, he is sort of like, oh, Niles Crane, <laughs> gone wilderness. <laughs> yes, if Niles Crane lived in the Adirondacks, this would be he would him. Be Leslie Howard, yeah. <laughs> and it's strange. The uh, I, I can't remember the character's name. I apologize. The remaining German, the, the crew remaining member. Nazi. The last Nazi. The, the crewman, though. Yeah. Is, is it just me or does he look very much like Sheldon from uh, The Big Bang? I know we're going way off the rails on that one. Sheldon seems more sophisticated. Sheldon's character, by the way, is also from Texas. Him. Him, yeah. Uh, what the actor? Yeah, yeah, the actor. He, he went Jim, to Klein High Jim, School. Jim, he went to Klein. Oh yeah. no shit! Jim Parsons. Yeah, Jim Parsons. I think that's right. the name. I saw the Big Bang set when I was in Warner Brothers a few years ago. It would shock you how just terribly small that is. Oh no, I saw um, sign. I saw um, what did I see? I saw the Larry Sanders show when I was in L.A. Yeah, and that's just yeah, it's a good introduction to you have these visions of things being enormously big and spacious, large. and they so are not. It, it's a fucking dream factory yeah. that Hollywood place. Mm -hmm. I tell you. <laughs> Illusion. It's amazing what they do. Magical. But where did the letter fluid come from? <laughs> uh, it's funny. He's reading the Thomas Mann book. They make they make a lot of fuss about Thomas Mann. Mm -hmm. They they kicked him out. The Nazis. They got rid of him. But it, it's funny that uh, Hearth. That's his name. It is Hearth. You're right. Yeah. He mocks uh, Leslie Howard for reading Thomas Mann. Man wrote about the the mountains and nature and, and, and how they were part of, of being German. And I thought that was weird because the Nazis were actually huge naturalists. They really dug uh, the Berg films from the from the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. Lenny Riefenstahl was in um, uh, a lot of those Berg films. Um, the Blue, not the Blue Angel, that was Dietrich. The Holy Mountain. Okay. Um well, the, I mean, the you, can have a, films. you can have a great love for the outdoors and a great love for killing people. It isn't; they are not mutually exclusive. Well, that's that's the great. I don't I don't want to say irony. Maybe coincidence is a better word, but that's something that's 
that people have always been trying to reconcile was, you know, you had Strauss and mm -hmm. all these, and Goethe and all these brilliant German thinkers and minds for hundreds of years and, and uh, at the peak of German powers when you have this horrible catastrophe. It, it, no one's ever been able to reconcile. It's just a fact that you had both. You had brilliant German minds that, that perpetrated this thing. Yeah, but couldn't you look at this as, look at that phenomenon as kind of a microcosm of the human species? Yes. I mean, capable of so much and so much on opposite ends. It's just the kind of the eternal conundrum. Genghis Khan built the world's largest empire. And was a period. It was an objectively terrible person. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, how many? Apart. I mean, how many artists do you have that create remarkable pieces of art, but are just reprehensible human beings? It's, yeah, it's that kind of, you know, yin yang, you know, black and white side of the coin, Harvey it's, Dent, if you will. Harvey Dent. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's just reality. It's just life. You mean that people are nuanced? Human beings. Some are. are. People. Some are. Just like this film. Yes, exactly. Which is why, like I said, I was very impressed watching it, walking in with the knowledge that it was a propaganda film, but not being, like I said, Bugs Bunny right. in his cartoon adventures. I, I did read um, in one of the books that I, that I read, uh, his name escapes me right now. I'll put the names to all the books that I read for this in, in the notes. But um, there were a lot of reviews in Britain when this came out in October of, of 1940. And I assume this was a very well-reviewed film. It was. October of 1941. 41? Uh, 41. Yeah, October of 1941. It was a very well-reviewed film. It was almost universal. People mm -hmm. loved it. But they, they did write that they were – they found Leslie Howard's erudite mm -hmm. uh, character a, a sad repetition – of like if you were to paint a picture of what uh, a Brit was in 1930 or 1940 rather it, it would be him right it would be this dude in an ascot wearing a wool sweater in a teepee reading Thomas Mann talking about his Picassos just very it just sophisticated Etonian or Oxfordian in, inherently silly and yes <laughs> and in a very like if Monty Python was actually serious, right, <laughs> it would look like Philip Armstrong, Armstrong Scott. So there was that sort of, and apparently he had he had played this role in in, in similar movies, and so it was getting kind of repetitive. Yeah, and he wasn't probably I don't think believe he was a big fan of the roles he was getting for the most part. Uh, during the war, um, you found no harder worker in the British film industry than Leslie Howard. This guy worked incessantly, and he fucking hated Nazis yeah. with a passion. He was, uh, you know, uh, I read an entire chapter on, on Leslie Howard's uh, pro-war activities mm -hmm. for the British government. Who he reminds me of is uh, Orson Welles, actually, who spent uh, an unbelievable amount of personal coin for... For the Allied cause, Leslie Howard was on uh, was an official, not correspondent, but uh, uh, I would say a personality for the BBC. Uh, he flew all over uh, the empire, pushing the cause. Mm -hmm. uh, he was constantly uh, 
in uh, parts of Europe, uh, North Africa, uh, helping the troops. Uh, he went all over Canada, went all over the United States. He absolutely believed to the nth degree that the Allied cause was, was something that he could spend uh, every, every single one of his last pennies on. He was a true British patriot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, like Glenn Miller, he was returning from, from uh, an activity in Spain. Right. He was, and he was drumming shot up down. support. He was drumming up support for the war in Spain. And uh, he was shot down on his way back to Britain, and he died. And you did you did you listen to the commentary track? No, I didn't. No, I'm really surprised you, you because got an up on me for that. Well, it was one of those that Bruce Eater and I. Like I said I haven't fact checked it, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that there's some degree of truth to the anecdote. Was that he wasn't the target by any stretch, but there was somebody who resembled. I'm blanking on the name, and I didn't write it down. Somebody who resembled, I think Churchill maybe, who was in his party. Yeah. So some, there was some sort of faulty information where they thought that they were. They thought that was right. There might was, be a possibility. That, right. Huh. Well, uh, shit like that happens. So there was there was actually a film made similar to that line in the late 1970s. Treat Williams was in it, and it, it took place about 1943, 1944, and uh, I think. Uh, uh, Oh, it's it's more clear to me now. I'm gonna have to find the name of it. Robert Duvall was in the SAS, and he 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 recruited and this sent a, a hit squad yeah. uh, to Britain to go kill Winston Churchill. And the leader of the hit squad, I think, was Donald Sutherland. This sounds familiar. No, Don, no, Donald Sutherland was like the Irish helper. Michael Caine mm -hmm. was the leader of the hit squad, and then uh, at, and Treat Williams was the. Uh, was like the captain of a military police unit who just happened to stumble across <clears throat> this the, plot, this plot that, that was going to assassinate Winston Churchill. And there's this fantastic battle in the finale of the film of, of these Americans jumping through this like very English looking um, courtyard of graves, like a graveyard into the church where Michael Caine and his, his Nazis are holed up having this sort of like anthropoid type of battle. For those of you who've seen Anthropoid, which is another great movie that came out a few years ago, but regardless of that, we'll we'll talk about it later. Okay, never heard of it, but it but it was it was really strange, like Robert Duvall and and Michael Caine and and it's Treat Williams and yeah and and they succeeded. They they killed Churchill Churchill in the car at the end, and and uh, you don't find out until after the battle uh, when they're pulling his body out that it was a double, mm -hmm. and Churchill actually used doubles th throughout the war he used doubles uh sometimes two and three it was kind of like saddam hussein like where, where's the real where is he? he's everywhere this is an excellent beer the stout yes that is outstanding so yeah so they so, so, yeah so that's okay so he uh they thought possibly that churchill was on that flight that's what that, if i'm re recalling the anecdote correctly which like i said i, I I failed. I did not write it down. That's fascinating. Because I figured for sure you would watch that. But what, <laughs> why would Churchill be coming back from Spain? Well, I don't know if Churchill even went to Spain during the war. Well, I don't believe – I mean, he obviously did. Or why they would have believed that. Well, what was Howard doing in Spain? Yeah. You know. Right. I mean, Spain was a hotbed of political intrigue during the war. Well, in 43, right, that's when when he died. Mm -hmm. Right. What was – was Spain uh, – what was the uh, situation in Spain at that point? Well, Spain, under, since, since the end of Spanish Civil War in 1938, 
1938, early 1939, Spain was run by a fascist regime right. under General Franco. Franco, Franco yeah. Um, but the, during the opening of the war in 1939, even into 1940, Hitler was trying to, Hitler actually took a train with like the leadership of the, the Nazi regime all the way down to Spain. And they held like a conference in, in Madrid for an entire day where he tried to convince Franco to come into the war. And Franco uh, basically said no. And the reason Franco said no uh, was because, um, believe it or not, this I don't know how much common knowledge this is, but the leader of the Abwehr, which is the, the, the German Navy uh, intelligence system, like their spy network, like we would say the CIA or mm -hmm. MI6 or during – in American during wartime, it was the OAS, the Office of or OSS, the yeah, Office OSS, of yeah. Strategic Services. It was actually the Abwehr. It was in the Navy, and the guy who ran that was a guy named Admiral Wilhelm Canaris. And Canaris's son was a U-boat captain who had died uh, during the Battle of the Atlantic, and he turned and started feeding the Allies information. I mean, this is extraordinary. The leading of the intel leader of the intelligence network in Nazi Germany feeding the Allies information, and he actually went down there. With Hitler and everybody, he had a private conversation with Franco. Said like, "If you get in this war, Spain will lose everything, and not only um, will it be uh, disastrous for you, but it'll be disastrous for uh, for the next thirty years for for Spain because mm -hmm. this will absolutely just completely destroy, destroy it as a nation." Right. And if you look at what happened to Germany and Italy after the war, that's not that's not, not outside the realms yeah. of reality. Um, so. By this time, so he decided to keep Spain neutral, uh, but everyone who had an embassy had one in Madrid, and Madrid and Spain in, in, in general and Portugal to a lesser extent became this uh, almost like a Casablanca type place where you had just spies freaking everywhere, like Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it's it's intriguing. I wonder why Howard was there. I mean, I don't think Churchill ever went to Spain during the war, but it makes me wonder why Howard was there to begin with. What the hell was he doing in Spain? Because it's immediately that, I just think, intrigue. Right. But I... And it wouldn't surprise me. Howard was such a patriot. You know, Josephine Baker was in Paris during the entire occupation, and and uh, she very brazenly and bravely uh, fed information from, from the German military to the Allies, the French resistance, and so forth. And we're getting, again, okay, off so topic. According to Wikipedia, so take this with the largest grain of salt. One theory suggests that the Germans attacked the aircraft because they believe that Prime, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was aboard. It doesn't necessarily say why, but it does support that story. The Lipson Wersch hmm. Church route frequently carried agents and escaped POWs to Britain. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, everybody who was who had feet and was on the Allied side tried to walk to Spain so they right. could get out. Yeah, uh, and Howard's line about well that explains everything: your arrogance, your mm -hmm. arrogance, your stupidity, and your bad manners. <laughs> Nazis were seen as people who had exceptionally bad manners, and they, they also make the the comment of eleven million Canadians. To think that there's eleven million Canadians in 1940—that's there's 38 million Canadians now, so they've they've almost quadrupled their population in, in a, 80 years. There's how many Canadians? There's 38 million Canadians now. There are more people in Texas than there are in all of Canada. Hmm. When I lived in Alberta, there were more people in Houston than there were in Alberta. 
there are more people on my side of town than there were in Calgary. Hmm. Unexpected. And most Canadians live within 200 miles of the Canadian border. The 49th that, parallel. I mean, that does make some degree yeah. of sense. And so it's it's the second largest country on the planet, but it might From as a, well be as thin as Chile. Right. That's what I read in a book by Pierre Burton. I guess it's really no dissimilar. It's one of those reasons why uh, you know they they Target opened I don't know like forty stores in Canada and they failed. They had, they had to write off like I don't know what it was like thirty billion dollars. It was a complete failure because a lot of Canadians they knew Target. They they drove to Target, mm-hmm. and so when when Targets opened, they were this is really expensive shit. <laughs> why is it so expensive? Like I've been to Target. It's just over right. there in Windsor. Why? I will just go there. Yeah, I'll just go there. I don't need a Target. Fuck this shit. <laughs> it's like those Americans coming up and trying to take my money. And bringing their horrible ideals. Yes. That explains everything. Their arrogance, their stupidity, and their exactly. bad manners. <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked uh, uh, Howard the Coward, as I called him, because they called him a coward, right? Right. Yeah. Howard the Coward proves his bravery by walking towards the cave and getting shot. I love that scene. I did. Too. I mean, that one is one of the few times where it is bordering on just plain silly. Yeah. But it is entertaining, and you kind of get into it and get it. I mean, it's obviously it's inherently ridiculous. It, it but is, but it's it's also one of those situations. Like, if I were to pick anyone out of Hollywood who would actually do that, it would probably be Leslie Howard. Right. It, it's it's you know? consistent with the perception. I mean, and... over John Wayne. John <laughs> Wayne took took a deferment because he had five kids and and didn't and yeah. to. And took an ext- extreme amount of shit over it. Yeah, and if John Wayne had gotten shot, it just would have bounced off him because he's John Wayne. <laughs> I'm, I'm John Wayne. He, it, it, it. No limp would have happened. I mean, you're talking about a guy who crows gills and breathes like a fish. <laughs> and he says one armed Superman against one unarmed Arm. decadent Democrat. Yep. Death to academics. <laughs> So, uh, Hearth heads to the border. So, one thing that didn't make sense to me, I already talked about it. Like, how are you right. going to get to Japan? Ra- mm-hmm. With a Raymond Massey all of a sudden appearing? Yeah. But you were saying, I'm sorry. Well, I was just trying to figure out why, if he's on his way to Vancouver, why is he backtracking to the Lethbridge, which is the other way? And then he gets on the train and supposedly goes south. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was wondering, like, if you look at how the camera rocks here, mm-hmm. like, how did they get that that natural rocking? Obviously, this is a, a set. So I was just wondering, how did that happen? Uh, I would imagine that you just have crew members who are moving the items back and forth. And then Hearth says, that, well, I'm not afraid. But then he's, like, hiding behind barrels, mm-hmm. barrels of oil, I'm sure. And then, of course, the, there's this uh, moment like out of Casablanca and Indiana Jones where you're going over the map. And now you're like playing with fantasy because in no way in one night or one day you can go from Lethbridge, Alberta to Niagara Falls, Ontario. That's not happening. Not even on a bullet uh, train. No, not even on a bullet <laughs> train. If you drove straight, it'd be like four or five days of driving. Yeah, it's a good And he certainly didn't knock him out that hard. No. And then they are in kind of like a freight car, which is pretty haunting, considering you think what Germans used freight cars. Well, they see that movement out the window. It's just very well, it's very well done. thought out. It does not look like back projection. Of course, it doesn't have to be of that 
quality. And it's almost like Hearth, Hearth kind of misses the point of why this guy is AWOL. Mm-hmm. No, he absolutely does. He interprets it through his own, you know, filters. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it is. But it, it does show the, oh, what's the right way to put it? The alien thought process where he's so disconnected with the, you know, North American, you know, thought process on their end. Yeah. The American turns them away because they are... They're not on the manifest. Right. They're <laughs> illegal immigrants. <laughs> so the Canadian Andy Brock goes back to Canada. Mm-hmm. Sure to be imprisoned for being AWOL. Because Certainly. he has to stop the German. He has to do the right thing. thing. He has to accept this punishment. That's right. But he has to do the right thing. And this really is an excellent sequence here at the end. Where the villainous Nazi believes he has triumphed due to his devious cunning and stronger will. And it turns out, nah, he gets turned back because of a technicality. Yeah. The film is a heavy Niagara Falls, beautiful shot of Niagara Falls, which apparently looks like a theme park on the American side. But on the on the Brit on the Canadian side it looks like a any neighborhood hmm. you would see anywhere in Canada. The film is a heavy attempt to write the themes of the Ministry of Information stated propaganda goals, like I was saying at the beginning, into the products of propaganda themselves. They address what we are fighting for and why we are fighting, and so doing, they are carefully and conscientiously setting out the advantages of adhering to the democratic ideals and of following the democratic system of government. When, compared with the hardships to be endured from espousing Nazi ideology and of living under the Nazi New Order. Apart from depicting the conflict of ideas and the issues at stake, it also managed to bring in the important matter of the part played by the Dominions in the war, and incidentally, though not insignificantly, it sought to allude to the American position on the war and how they might fit in. But, surprisingly, not everybody liked this movie. I pulled a couple of uh, movie reviews. Mm-hmm. Quote, on the negative side, it has been claimed that, A, that we have been so conditioned by Hollywood to being on the side of the hunted rather than the hunters that there is bound to be some sympathy with the pursued Nazis. B, that it is a pretty poor show if six Germans can be at large for so long in a hostile country. <laughs> <laughs> and C, that an episode such as that in which an Englishman is presented as a dilettante is just playing into German hands, and the toughness of the pari-off pari off doesn't redress the negative effect. Here's another one. And these are uh, these are criticisms from the time. Yeah, from from uh, they're, from newspapers in London. They're current. Yeah, contemporary. Mm-hmm. Whether we like it or not, a picture of the Englishman as soft and decadent has grown up all over the past ten years, especially in the USA. And it is probably good propaganda to take the bull by the horns and put him on the screen. Here, the trick is to give your audience a picture of someone whom they wrongly think is representative and to turn the tables on them by revealing him as unexpectedly tough. Whatever the opinion over there may be, it is a likely bet that Howard's knockout of the Nazi will be a good propaganda stroke in the USA. So Pretty accurate. So the newspapers in London at the time knew this was a propaganda film. And oh, yeah. And were describing it as such. And, and I... 
Gosh, isn't that kind of a no-brainer? Wouldn't it have been presented more or less as It would such? be presented all... as a propaganda thing. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's but... kind of a known quantity. Yeah. But they're not necessarily buying into it 100%, just like, okay, we're not going to have any criticism whatsoever as a piece of art, right? So, Or even the effectiveness of the propaganda, as it turns out. Yeah. They're criticizing it, the, prop- the effectiveness of the propaganda. That's pretty entertaining it's it's almost like well then does it cease to be propaganda like if yeah. you i don't know it's it's you're openly allowed to criticize it as like you couldn't do that in berlin you just yeah you certainly that's not the way you envision Riefenstahl. <laughs> you see that she made last night that you know freitag die hertite or whatever the hell the name of it was like you wouldn't be allowed to do that no but i guess that is one of those that one of the huge differentiators Pressburger got uh, nominated for an Academy Award in 1942 for the 49th Parallel. For, I'm sorry, repeat one more time. Pressburger. Oh, Pressburger did for the writing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, and it is. It's 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 kind of crackerjack. You know, it's it's consistently. You know, the logic is consistent. The speeches. The clever little flipping here. The win on a technicality. No, I like the speeches, but I, like I, I have to say. They're more subtle than, say, like you, you watched the other night, you watched um, one of our aircraft mm-hmm. is missing. That was almost devoid of speeches, except for that one the the, the Dutch Patriot makes next to the window yes. uh, in the third act. Mm-hmm. And I thought, like, I almost cried during that speech. I thought that was so amazing. That instead of one big speech in the 49th parallel, you've got, like, lots of smaller Right. You've got the one in the Hutterite colony. Mm-hmm. But that's not like like boldly over the top, in my opinion. It's, no, it's, it's really like ham, not ham-fisted. It's the wrong terminology. No, it's, it's very firm. It's, very it's firm. not very yeah. showy. Right. You know, there's no yelling. Right. Right. There's not a whole, really a significant amount of emotion associated with it. Yeah. I mean, but I prefer the one in one of our aircraft is missing. Maybe because it's on the opposite side. It, it could be. I'd... But both films... And one of our aircraft is missing is like the opposite of the 49th parallel. It's, 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 right. I, I know, kind it's of, a, you did like, uh, you know, what, what is it? Flags of our fathers and Sands of Iwo Jima. Yeah. You know, they're not, it's not necessarily that direct of a mirror image, but yeah, it is, it is a companion piece, uh, a sister film, if you will. Yeah. But I also found that one significantly less satisfying because, well, we'll go into that later. Well, yeah. This film was banned in Argentina. That's unexpected. By Juan Perón. But they were big fans of, you know, they had some Nazi sympathies going they on did. down there. I've seen the boys from Brazil. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we're here now at the, at the end. The Canadians, Lawrence Olivier, who knew? Yep. Lay on. Glennis Johns was in this. Charles Victor. These are people that were running around Hollywood at the time. They were, yeah. So very good. The end. Dave, thanks for watching the 49th Parallel with me. Thank you for having us. All right. Thanks for joining Dave and me while we watched the 49th Parallel. The Super 70 Podcast is found wherever you find podcasts. If you love it, drop a five-star review on iTunes. If you don't, drop me a line at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. You can find me, my books, and my blog at www thatdellandavis.com all music on this podcast is written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail you can find her like you can find me on Twitter and SoundCloud I'm Dylan Davis 
Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on the long way back home to Sweden. Thank you.